You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For April 5th, 2017, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. This is the second episode in our mini-series on climate science. In the first of the series, episode 36, we took a surface look at some of the main pieces of scientific evidence for anthropogenic climate change, as well as some of the debate about it. In the subsequent episodes, we'll go a bit deeper on narrower topics, starting with this one. In this episode, we talk with Zeke Hausfather, a research scientist at Berkeley Earth, a nonprofit research group, and a PhD student with the Energy and Resources Group at UC Berkeley. His research focuses on improving observational estimates of global temperatures, climate model observation comparisons, and climate impacts of energy systems. We start off with recent allegations published by a UK newspaper that climate scientists at NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, who published the so-called PauseBuster paper in 2013, had deliberately used misleading data to influence the Paris Agreement on climate. Then we'll do a deep dive into the science of measuring ocean temperatures and find out if the melting of permafrost and undersea methane clathrates could lead the planet into runaway global warming. And we'll discuss some research on the net emissions effect of switching from coal to gas in power generation, including the thorny issue of fugitive emissions from natural gas production and distribution. And finally, we'll take another look at the question of decoupling economic growth from energy consumption and how emissions are counted in the first place. And then in the news segment, we discuss a new study on the heat absorption of the ocean, the effect that Trump's proposed budget cuts would have on climate science, an IEA report on decoupling of emissions and economic growth, a breathtakingly ambitious proposal that would support a massive expansion of offshore wind in the North Sea, and a new report on the UK's electricity interconnections with neighboring countries. But first, our conversation with Zeke Hausfather. So let's bring him to the conversation now. Welcome, Zeke, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. So I'd like to start with a little question we touched on just briefly in episode 36, and that's about an argument that global warming skeptics are fond of making against global warming. They say that the Earth's warming slowed down or stopped after 1998, and that we've actually been in a pause or a hiatus in the warming trends that was not predicted by the climate models since then. But we have now logged three years in a row that were successfully the hottest on record, and you were featured in a recent article in Berkeley News titled, Global Warming Hiatus Disproved Again. So what's the reality here? Did the hiatus in global warming even happen, or is it just over, or what's the latest science telling us? So the latest science is telling us that, on the surface at least, there is no evidence of any pause or slowdown through present. Now, there was a period between 1998 and you know, 12 or so, where surface temperatures were warming fairly slowly, and temperatures were on the low end of climate model projections. But the last three years, 2014, 2015, and 2016, have been the three year warmest years on record by a fairly large margin. 
And that really has put any notion of a pause or hiatus to rest. At the same time, we've also uncovered some problems in the way we were measuring ocean temperatures that contributed to underestimating the rate of warming in recent years. And so the combination of fixing those issues and you know the last three years being record hot has really put to bed any pause at the surface. So what was the deal with the pause claim? I mean, I, I saw the charts. It did look like about a decade-long pause to me. Uh, what was that all about? So it was a combination of a couple different things. One is that the start year of the pause was sort of a, a super El Nino. So El Nino is a five to seven year cycle where El Nino events tend to make warmer temperatures globally. La Nina events tend to make colder temperatures globally. And 1998 was a record El Nino event. And so temperatures were really high at the starting point. And so if you cherry pick part of a time series that starts at a high point, you're going to get a bit lower trend uh, mm -hmm. than if you were to you know, choose any other year as a starting point. So part of right. it was that. Part of it was also, there have been a number of different papers trying to look at reasons why that particular period might have been a little cooler than we expected. A number of papers have pointed to small volcanoes that weren't taken into account well in climate models. They've pointed to changes in ocean circulations, particularly in the Pacific, as a potential driver, as well as more sort of La Nina conditions than we typically see. And the answer may be partially all of those, it may be none of those. It's hard because over such a short period, we're only talking about 12 to 15 years here, the results you get are very sensitive to your start and end points and very sensitive to small variability. Whereas if you look at longer periods, like the last 30 years, for example, you know the warming trend is pretty clear and unambiguous. Okay, that makes good sense. But in any case, the last three years of extreme heat just definitely put an end to whatever pause people thought there might yeah. have been. In fact, the rate of warming since 1998 has been faster than the rate of warming since 1970, with the last three years included. So if anything, you know, we have a slight acceleration, albeit certainly not a statistically significant one. Okay. I got to ask what might be a dumb question, but how useful is it to measure sea surface temperatures instead of like atmospheric temperatures or temperatures deeper underwater? I mean, I assume that you don't have to go that deep in the ocean before you find fairly stable temperatures. I mean, I think at a certain depth, it would be hard for global warming on the surface to even change them very much. Well, so water has what we term a high specific heat capacity. So it takes a lot of energy to warm water, as you point out. And so while there's been a lot more energy going into the ocean than there has into surface air, it has warmed more slowly. And we actually have pretty good monitoring systems since about 2004 or 2005 called the Argo Network. These are these awesome robotic buoys that dive down each day deep into the ocean about 2,000 meters down, come slowly back up, measure temperature, salinity, all these cool variables as they go. And once they get to the top, they send the data they've collected off to satellites. And these have led us to be able to chart for the first time warming in the deeper oceans, which is of interest to you know our models, understanding the energy flows and energy balances of the Earth. And there's been a, a lot of interesting work done on in that. You know, that said, we we live at the surface, and ultimately the temperatures that are going to affect us in our way of lives are our surface temperatures. And the reason that we tend to measure sea surface temperatures in particular, and not say the temperature of the air over the ocean is largely that that's what we've measured more in the past. The 19th century, the 1800s, there was a big focus on better understanding and improving ship navigation through you know, looking at ocean currents, looking at you know, the dynamics of shipping routes and things like that. And that led to a big focus on taking ocean temperature measurements. So around 1850, there was a global agreement to have all the major shipping companies take temperature measurements from their ships. 
And that involved throwing a bucket over the side of the ship, pulling it up, sticking a thermometer in it, and writing down a log of the measurements. There are some air temperature measurements from ships as well, but they're a lot spottier. And they're also a lot less standardized. So different ships took temperatures at different times of day. And that can result in problems when you're trying to stitch together a long-term estimate of climate change. Because if some ships took temperatures at midnight, some took them at 6 p.m., some took them at 7 a.m., it's hard to really make sense of that. And so it's mainly a historical accident that we focus on sea surface temperatures rather than surface air temperatures over the ocean. But it is where the long-term record exists. And it's also an area that we have very good data on for the last 20 years or so because of all these buoys we've deployed around the ocean. There's about... 1,800 of them floating around right now. Again, they monitor automatically. They sit directly in the water and they send the data up to satellites that global groups aggregate in databases and use to estimate the changing climate. Huh. So I assume that there's maybe some more reliability or more stability in temperatures measured in the air over the ocean as opposed to on land? The oceans tend to change more slowly than the land. And in fact, Mm. if we look at global temperature estimates... We generally find that the land is warming about 30 to 50 percent faster than the oceans, depending on what time you look at, in part because the land very quickly responds to changing what we call radiative forcing, essentially changing amount of heat trapped in the atmosphere by greenhouse gases, where the ocean changes much more slowly because a lot of that extra trap heat ends up going down into the deep oceans. And so the oceans sort of lag behind the surface, whereas the land is more of a representation of what we'd expect at equilibrium. And by at equilibrium, I mean when everything heats up and the energy into the Earth system is balanced by the energy going out of the Earth system. Okay. So what about the relationship between atmospheric temperature records and sea surface temperatures? I've read that ambient temperatures didn't increase as much as some models predicted, but then that was actually blamed on the fact that the oceans were absorbing more heat than was expected. So that isn't so much of an issue of oceans versus land. There's a number of things that go into those sort of calculations. So we published a paper two years ago now where we looked at how models, climate models and observations are compared. And one of the challenges is that most people looking at climate models use the climate model surface air temperature field. So climate models produce different estimates of temperature. They produce ocean temperatures, surface air temperatures, temperatures all the way up through the atmosphere. And what most people historically had done is taken the surface air temperature globally from the climate models and compared it to the observational global temperature records from groups like NASA, NOAA, the UK Hadley Center. And all of these observational temperature records, they combine sea surface temperatures over the ocean with air temperatures over the land. And so people are kind of comparing apples to oranges. And it turns out that in the climate models, at least, the temperature of the air over the ocean is warming faster than the temperature of the ocean surface itself which is something you'd kind of expect. The ocean surface itself is more affected by the temperature of the water beneath it than the air over the ocean. Right. And what we found is when we took climate models and took the sea surface temperature part of the model over the ocean and the surface air temperature part of the model over the land, and then compared those to the actual observations, it got rid of about half, 40% or so of the discrepancy between models and observations in recent years. Um, So some of it was just kind of comparing the wrong thing. Now, there's another aspect of air temperatures. So we have, you know, about 40,000 temperature stations on land and on islands and and various places around the world measuring temperature at about two meters or six feet of height. We also have temperature measurements of the lower atmosphere from satellites. The challenge is that the temperature measurements of the lower atmosphere are about five miles up. 
And there's different dynamics that go on up there as well. So they're not really directly comparable to the surface, though, unfortunately, people often conflate the two. And there's a lot more uncertainty in these satellite-based atmospheric temperature estimates. You know, some of them, like the new record put up by remote sensing systems here in California, shows about the same amount of warming as the surface. Others, for example, the University of Alabama Huntsville group shows about only two-thirds as much warming in the last 30 years as the surface record. A lot of this uncertainty comes down to how you treat changes from one satellite to another and changes in the orbits of the satellites over time. So, for example, these satellites, they're in low Earth orbit. They only last about seven years before they fall out of orbit and disintegrate and a new one needs to be sent up. And as they're measuring temperatures, they're slowly getting closer to the Earth. And the time at which they pass every point on Earth changes. So these satellites are in an orbit where they are supposed to pass the same point on Earth twice every day at the same time every day. And what's happened is as the satellite orbits decay, they go from passing over San Francisco at noon to by the end of the satellite's life passing over at 6 p.m. And if you're trying to look at the temperature over time and you switch the time that you're taking the temperature, it's going to have a big effect on your results. So there's a fair amount of uncertainty in how you correct for all those sort of things to produce a consistent estimate of atmospheric temperatures. And reasonable choices in those corrections can lead to very different results, as we see between the remote sensing systems group and the University of Alabama group, whereas the surface records are a lot more consistent. No matter what subset of the 40,000 or so stations you choose, you get pretty much the same picture on global warming. And there's not as much uncertainty in our surface record as there is in our satellite record. Okay. And if I'm remembering correctly from my discussion with Oliver Morton on geoengineering in episode 26, the various layers of the atmosphere tend to be kind of fairly stable within themselves. Like there's not a huge amount of mixing between the layers. Is that part of it too, is in terms of how much heat can actually transfer between the different layers? So there's not that much mixing between the stratosphere and the tropospheres. The troposphere is the lower part of the atmosphere. The stratosphere is sort of the middle to upper part of the atmosphere. Right. There, there's not much mixing. There is a fair amount of mixing within the troposphere itself. And we take measurements of different parts of the troposphere, the lower troposphere, the middle troposphere. One of the challenges is that the satellites, they're not very precise in which part of the atmosphere they cover. Hmm. So they often end up getting a little bit of the stratosphere in their estimate as well as the troposphere. And the stratosphere actually has been cooling, which is something we'd expect. In fact, it's one of the fingerprints of climate change is stratospheric cooling because, you know, we're reducing the amount of heat that's escaping from the Earth's lower atmosphere through all these Because it's being trapped. Right. Exactly. Okay. I'm also just now recalling a paper I read some years ago about being able to track the temperature over time of the tropopause as kind of a leading indicator of what's happening with warming. The tropopause is certainly interesting. It's tough to precisely track, though, because, again, the satellite instruments we have get a fairly wide swath of the atmosphere. And so I think there have been some efforts to look at it, but there's a large uncertainty around that. Hmm. Okay. So let's talk about the way these findings have been treated. Mm -hmm. Back in 2009, in the so-called ClimateGate affair, climate scientists were accused of manipulating and hiding data, mainly because one researcher said something about a trick involved in rationalizing the data. That turned out to be a nothing break. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. The full episode covers much more. In order to hear the rest, point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and become a member. Annual subscriptions start at just $60 a year, and monthly subscriptions are also available. It's like subscribing to your favorite magazine or newspaper, but we prefer to think of it as buying us a pint once a month as a way of saying thanks. 
The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. So please join us today and support our advertising-free show featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. A new study in the journal Science Advances found that the ocean has absorbed far more heat than previously expected during the current period of global warming, 13 times as much as the previous estimates, in fact. These findings were a result of exactly what Zeke was talking about in this interview. New measurements from the Argo network of devices that have been deployed to directly measure temperatures in the sea, in addition to the earlier data sets of measurements made from ships. According to Kevin Trenberth of the National Center for Atmospheric Research, NCAR, who authored the study, the new estimates help explain observations of global sea level rise that scientists have had difficulty accounting for until now. Item 2. NCAR and NOAA, both of which were involved in the aforementioned study, are targeted for severe budget cuts by the Trump administration, cuts which could end that same Argo program which just cleared up the ocean heat question. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.